You're listening to Fake News with Clarence Tam and Jane Lim at the Sosu Hock School of Public Health, National University of Singapore. For today's episode, we met with David Heyman, a professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He explained to us exactly what the fake, a public health emergency of international concern is. We recorded this episode on 11th March, coincidentally the same day that COVID-19 was declared a pandemic by the WHO. We hope you enjoyed the episode. So joining us today is Professor David Heyman. David is a professor of infectious disease epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Uh, and he has a lifetime of experience dealing with infectious disease outbreaks both locally and globally. <laughs> uh, he's telling me to cut down on the flowery introductions. Uh, but importantly, he was also uh, director of the Communicable Disease Cluster at WHO during the SARS epidemic um, and chaired the WHO Emergency Committee during the Zika epidemic in 2016. So welcome, David, and thank you for, for joining us. Thanks very much, Clarence. Uh, so today's episode is called What the Fake, um, and I can think of no better person to tell us about what the fake is going on. So David, uh, maybe we can start with uh, this public health emergency of international concern, which people I'm sure will have heard about, or fake. Uh, so can you tell us what uh, the public health emergency of uh, international concern is, and what, what is the mechanism, and what, it, what the function is of the fake? Well, the, f- the fake is a public health emergency of international concern, and this is a part of the international health regulations. The international health regulations are a treaty that was actually developed back in 1969 and revised in 2005 after the SARS outbreak. The revision of the international health regulations divided it clearly into two parts. One part was a requirement of all countries to develop core capacities in public health surveillance and to report each year to WHO on progress being made in development of those core capacities that would permit every country to detect and respond more rapidly, thus preventing international spread. That is the current present core of the international health regulations. But in addition, there's a safety net that, uh, that comes into action when countries are unable to stop an outbreak or where it threatens to spread internationally. And that's called the Public Health Emergency of International Concern, or the FAKE, a mechanism by which WHO declares an emergency going on in the world and gets all countries to work together on this emergency. And a potential emergency of international concern or potential fake is determined by a decision tree that tells three things, whether or not what's occurring is expected, whether or not it risks crossing international borders, and whether or not it could have implications on travel and trade. When a potential public health emergency of international concern is reported to WHO, the director general then calls together an emergency committee, which is made up of experts from around the world who decide whether or not the evidence that's available to them at the time of their meeting constitutes a public health emergency of international concern. Then a recommendation is made to the Director General whether or not there is a public health emergency of international concern, and the Director General takes that information 
along with information that he or she obtains from many other sources, including special groups of experts that the Director General might call together or other advisory groups in WHO. And with all of this information, the Director General decides whether or not he or she will call a public health emergency of international concern or a fake. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, and so thinking about some of the kind of considerations and challenges that the emergency committee takes into account when declaring a, a fake, do you see um, some specific uh, challenges or considerations in, in, the, in this particular COVID-19 outbreak that you think have made that decision quite difficult? Well, many times the emergency committee recommendation is followed by the director general but it doesn't necessarily need to be followed by the Director General. The Director General can decide for other reasons that an event is not a public health emergency of international concern. And many times within the discussions about a public health emergency by the emergency committee, there's disagreement and there's inability to come to consensus as to whether or not an event is really a public health emergency of international concern. When that occurs, there's usually a collection of further information and a meeting of the emergency committee in the weeks that follow to take this new information and decide whether or not it constitutes an emergency. And each emergency committee is different. There's a new chairperson and there's also a new group of members of that emergency committee for a specific disease. I myself was asked to be um, the chairman of the Zika emergency committee and we had a very difficult time in deciding, for example, what the public health emergency was. Was it a clustering of microcephaly in certain countries, or was it an infectious disease which was causing minor symptoms, as was Zika at that time? And so initially, the public health emergency recommendation to the Director General was that the clustering of microcephaly was a public health emergency of international concern. Once a link was established between microcephaly and the Zika virus, which was causing minor infection and minor disease, once that link was made, then the public health emergency was no longer microcephaly, but it was actually Zika infection. And for this particular COVID-19 epidemic, I think WHO declared the fake in like, end of January, January 30th, I think. So do you think there was a, I, mean, I think there was some disagreement before then about whether it, it did or did not constitute uh, an emergency. So do you think there was a particular tipping point or, or something specific that, that changed the, the discussion? Well, at the first emergency committee of the current outbreak of COVID-19, there was not agreement among countries as to whether or not this was actually a public health emergency of international concern. And the reasons, as I understand them, was because several outbreaks were being successfully contained and transmission interrupted, and it wasn't yet sure the extent to which the outbreak would spread internationally. By the time of the second emergency committee meeting, which was a few weeks later, it was clear that the outbreak was spreading internationally, and there was a consensus that this was actually a public health emergency of international concern, and that was the recommendation made to the Director General. And do you see differences from this uh, coronavirus outbreak with past um, outbreaks? Well, this epidemic is clearly different from SARS. SARS was a, a, a pathogen which was lower in the pulmonary system, lower in the lungs, than is the current virus, 
COVID-19, which is higher. And therefore, coughing and sneezing are a much easier way of transmitting COVID-19 than was a cough and sneeze for the SARS virus. So these are two different viruses, two different places where they reproduce in the human organism, and uh, two ways of transmission. And the COVID virus is much easier to transmit, it appears, than was the SARS coronavirus. And it, it has continued to spread internationally. And in terms of WHO's role um, in global response and coordination uh, now compared to uh, the SARS epidemic in 2003, do you see some differences there? Well, the way that WHO is working now is exactly the way it was working in the SARS outbreak. It was collecting information from many different sources, from medical journals and published articles, from informal groups of clinicians, of epidemiologists, and of, of virologists working at the outbreak sites around the world, and trying to daily do an update on the risk assessment so that the world can be notified as to where things stand. Right now, it's considered to be a series of outbreaks which are beginning to spread into the community, and eventually there will be probably more community spread. Um, the difficulty being that at present, there's only a diagnostic test in, that can diagnose acute infections. So when people have had infections in the past, if they've been mild or if they've been asymptomatic or even serious infections, there's no way of doing a, an antibiotic an antibody test which can tell you that this was indeed COVID-19 infection. Those tests are being developed, they'll soon be validated and in use, but at present we're limited in the understanding we have because of the lack of a diagnostic test that can diagnose previous infection. And I think the general public has a fairly abstract relationship with WHO. I mean, many people are not necessarily aware of uh, all the kind of behind the scenes that WHO does in terms of coordinate, coordinating and technical guidance. So can you give us some insight into uh, some of these other things that WHO does? WHO's role in an infectious disease outbreak is to do a risk assessment on a regular basis using all the information that's available and then advising countries as to what the best measures are to prevent control, and make sure that patients are managed properly. This is WHO's core function in infectious disease outbreaks. This is the way it's working now. This is the way it worked during SARS, collecting information from many sites, using that information to do a risk assessment and make recommendations on what needs to be done. So WHO is working the same way as it did during the SARS outbreak, putting out daily updates on its risk assessment and on guidelines of updating how patients can be treated, updating information about surveillance, and a whole series of other factors about the current outbreaks. What's new at this outbreak is that the medical journals are not only guaranteeing to review manuscripts very rapidly, which they're doing within a week, peer review is done, then articles are put online in front of the paywall. This accomplishes two different things. It permits the authors of these manuscripts to have the academic credit that they need, but in addition, it also permits others to have access to the information at no cost and use this in national risk assessments or in better understanding of the disease. I think definitely the, the amount of information that's been uh, put out so far in the past couple of months has been staggering. And if I can ask you, WHO's strategy to date has been very much on, on containment. Uh, 
do you think this is still given where we are now where we have uh, fairly large clusters of local transmission in Europe and North America do you think this is still the the best strategy WHO's current strategy is a blended strategy first of all if there are discrete outbreaks WHO recommends that transmission be interrupted if possible this will delay spread hopefully at the same time where there are community outbreaks WHO is recommending to investigate these as best as possible but then to on based on a national risk assessment to decide whether there are other measures that need to be done such as um, closing down public events, public gatherings of people, um, of course preparing hospitals for severe illness including isolation facilities and availability of respiratory support equipment if necessary and a whole series of other activities including better infection control in hospitals and especially in this outbreak in homes for the elderly. And in terms of things like um, hospital beds, intensive care, oxygen support, um, how much of a challenge do you think this is going to be for, for the countries that are experiencing epidemics now? It's, it's recognized even now that health systems in countries where major outbreaks are occurring are not able to support all the patients that they need to. These patients are mainly elderly with comorbidities such as diabetes or cardiac disease or other respiratory disease. And um, it's clear that, that patients are not able to get the care they need. And hospitals at the same time, because they're isolating patients with COVID infection, are not able to deal with the normal patient loads that they must deal with. That's why it's so very important to try to delay, at least to stagger, the onset of community transmission as best as possible by containing those discrete outbreaks. And what do you think are some of the key unknowns at the moment or uncertainties? There are two major uncertainties at present. One is to understand the real transmissibility of this virus in communities. That's beginning to be understood, but we still don't understand what's called the reproductive number, the number of persons who can be infected from one infected person. That information will become clear as we move through the current outbreaks. Second information that we don't understand is the natural history of disease. How many cases are really asymptomatic, how many infections rather, are really asymptomatic, how many are minor infections like a common cold, and how many require hospitalization. What we believe from evidence in China is that the majority of cases, perhaps 80% or a few more percentages, are very mild, and that it's only those 20% maybe that need hospitalization, and among them there may be a mortality, but we don't quite understand the ratio of mortality, the case mortality ratio. And there's been a lot of discussion about whether this should be declared a pandemic or, or not. Do you have any views on, on the term pandemic or, or what implications it might have if this is declared a pandemic? Well, up until the present, this has been a series of outbreaks, and it's not acted quite the same as influenza, which causes pandemics. The novel influenza virus in 2009 that caused a pandemic was very difficult to stop, and it wasn't, and countries weren't able to stop it when it occurred first in their countries in a discrete outbreak because it spread very rapidly. This virus appears to be spreading less rapidly, and there had been successful containment activities in many countries when the virus first entered the country. So it's not transmitting in the way that pandemics have transmitted in the past, 
But declaring a pandemic will be up to WHO when they decide that it fulfills their requirements to declare a pandemic. And there's a lot of speculation now about what's going to happen with this uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. Is it going to become endemic? Are we going to see recurring seasonal epidemics? Do you have any views on that? Well, you know, there are many infections, including coronavirus infections, that are endemic in human populations. Endemic coronavirus causes the common cold in many countries in the world. Other infections, such as HIV, emerged from the animal kingdom um, and became endemic. And it's clear that these coronaviruses that are causing the common cold probably also emerged at some time and began to circulate in human populations and become endemic. What's different about this outbreak is that it occurred very suddenly and spread around the world very rapidly. So what we're seeing today is a globalized world where there's an outbreak which has come to the attention of everyone because it spread so rapidly. Previously, outbreaks spread very slowly. Um, the HIV um, epidemics in the world were occurring probably throughout the 20th century and only transmission was amplified when it got into places where there was promiscuous sexual behavior and amplification of transmission. And then it also boarded airplanes and spread around the world. And going back to this uh, fake mechanism, I think this is the sixth time uh, it's been used. Um, how useful do you think this mechanism has, has been? Uh, we're seeing now being declared every couple of years. Uh, so do you think there's, there's any changes or do you think it's working well or do you think that there might be some modifications that need to be made to the, to the mechanism? Well, there are differences in understanding of what the public health emergency of international concern really means. Some countries feel are, are waiting for WHO to declare a public health emergency of international concern so that they can then mobilize resources for the outbreak. They feel that it's a signal that they can begin to provide funding. Others are waiting to see if it's a public health emergency of international concern in order to hear WHO's recommendations about travel and trade. So there's confusion about what the public health emergency of international concern declaration really means. And WHO actually had a, no a meeting in November um, where they were looking at various interpretations of the public health emergency and trying to decide what might be um, necessary now to make it more standard so that everybody understands it in the same way. And the recommendations from that meeting are not yet out, but I believe that some of the recommendations were that WHO's role is risk assessment, and it should begin to do that immediately and grade the severity of an outbreak based on its risk assessment rather than waiting for the public health emergency of international concern mechanism to do that. But this is all work in progress and WHO is evaluating now the public health emergency of international concern as it was conceived in 2005 in the revision of the IHR. Yeah. To some extent countries already have some of these uh, mechanisms in terms of epidemic alerts. Right. So in, in Singapore we have a color-coded one that is uh, intended to give the public an indication of where we are in the epidemic, and perhaps that's something that... Yeah, and that's... All countries are doing their own risk assessments, such as Singapore, and what that means is that WHO may not have to do this global risk assessment. WHO's information is very important for countries, and the, 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 the information can then be used by countries to do a national risk assessment, such as Singapore has done, and make its own recommendations rather than having to depend on the World Health Organization. So the world has changed. There's actually um, many, many discussions going on about the usefulness 
of the international health regulations and the public health emergency of international concern declaration. And I think within the next few years, that will become much more clear. Uh, and just to end with, um, can you tell us one thing about this outbreak that has particularly resonated with you, something that perhaps you've learned or that was unexpected? I think the whole world has learned from Singapore a lot about the current outbreak. And one of the most important things is that when people within a country understand that it's a social responsibility not only to prevent infection of oneself, but also to protect others, um, it becomes very, it's, it's a very important way of controlling outbreaks such as happened here in Singapore. People have taken this to heart. If they have a cough or are sneezing, they wear a mask to protect others. But at the same time, they know that by washing hands and, and doing a whole series of other personal hygiene measures, they can prevent themselves from becoming infected as well. That's a great note to, to end on. So thank you very much for your, for your thoughts and your insights. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this episode. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email us. Otherwise, don't forget to subscribe to Fake News to get updates on the latest episodes. In the meantime, remember to keep washing your hands and see you next week.